Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, Make It Count, with a message titled, Difficult Times in the Last Days. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I want to begin by reading the first several words of today's passage. But understand this, that in the last days there will come, you know, and with those words, some of you want to say, enough, enough. I'm tired of people telling me what's going to come in the last days. I know it's not well to speak ill of the dead, but in this case, it would be negligent not to remind people of those errors we do well to note and then to avoid. So here goes. There was once a fringe personality who's a radio preacher named Harold Camping. And at one time, he categorically predicted that the rapture would occur on May 21st, 2011. And then as if that weren't enough, he even went so far as to say that if you didn't believe that, you were probably not saved. Now, when that didn't happen, he announced that he had gotten some of his calculations wrong and that the rapture was actually going to happen on October 21st of the same year. And then when that didn't happen, he then announced that he had made an embarrassing error. But apparently, he wasn't embarrassed enough. And then came the awkward part. He said he was checking his notes to see where he had made his error. Now, I felt like I wanted to call him back then because I could have helped him with that. I would have suggested checking out Mark 13, 32, where Jesus says, Concerning that day, no one knows the day or the hour. And I would have asked, Do you have Mark 13, 32 in your notes? My, I could go on and on. You know, I saw a book with the title, 11 Reasons Jesus Will Return in Our Lifetime. Oh my, it just never seems to end. And that's why when we read the words that begin 2 Timothy chapter 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come, and then gives us signs of what will happen when the end time comes, that many of us, you know, who know of something about the hundreds, perhaps thousands of those failed prophecies that many of us like to say, please say no more. So let me whip this horse just a little longer, would you let me? You know, on this matter, that is, on the matter of 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9, I have on many occasions heard and read various people say, look, we must be in the end times, but look how people are now lovers of self and lovers of pleasure. 2 Timothy said, that's going to be a sign that we're in the end times. You know, and while that kind of thinking does excite many, It also has others who know of the, you know, thousands of failed prophecies simply roll their eyes and say, well, here we go again. So let's begin by reading our text, shall we? It's 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth." Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So I want to make a very clear statement. 
When Paul speaks of the last days, he is not, let me repeat that, not predicting the actual coming of our Lord, nor is he saying that when you see these things, you're going to know where you are on the prophetic calendar. Rather, what Paul is saying, listen closely, Paul is saying is that the last days are those days that stretch from the death of Jesus, that is his resurrection, his ascension, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the formation of the church. Those are the beginning of the last days, and those days will end when Jesus returns. Paul means to say, after the resurrection, we've entered into the last great era of human history. As to how long that era will last, well, we have no idea. But what Paul does know is what this era is going to be like. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 7, and put away your prophetic clocks and instead understand that this era will not be one where things just get morally better and better until Jesus comes again. It isn't going to be like that. So in this passage, Paul, who's being persecuted and is awaiting execution, wants Timothy to know what the times will be like from Pentecost to the second coming. Now that the Holy Spirit has come, now that the gospel is moving forward, now that people are coming to Christ as Savior and Lord, what will the world be like? And his answer, well, it's simple. There is a dangerous moral road that lies ahead. Notice again at the end of verse 1, Paul promises times of difficulty. So that word difficulty means dangerous times. That word is the very same word that's used in Matthew 8:28, which says, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce, notice the word fierce, that no one could pass that way. It's the same word as difficult. The word means difficult, fierce, violent, ugly, dangerous, cruel, and vicious, things like that. Notice also the text says times of difficulty. The Greek language had two different words for the word time. The first was the word chronos, where we get our English word chronology. And if you were to ask me what time is it, you'd be asking me a question of chronos. But that's not the word Paul uses. He uses the word kairos, a word that speaks of eras, of epochs, of grand events. Paul is telling us that in the future, from between Christ's first and second coming, there will be seasons and eras or great events of vicious and cruel dangers. Now, that might not surprise us. I mean, after all, when Paul writes this, he's in prison. He himself is living in a vicious epoch. Is that what Paul is saying to us? Well, no, there's something much more in this passage than the idea that we can expect persecution. Now, Paul has already told Timothy about that, but consider the context here in which he writes verse 1. Notice in verse 8, Paul mentions two men who opposed Moses in his day. Janus and Jambres are actually not mentioned in the First Testament, but according to Jewish tradition, those two men were magicians in Pharaoh's court. And you'll remember that when Moses performed his first miracle, that is, when he threw his staff down and it became a snake, that the magicians did the same. So please don't think of those magicians the way we do today, you know, people who are illusionists. No, no. These magicians were demon-possessed men who had the ability to perform supernatural feats through the power of Satan. So these two men, whether they were just two men who actually had those two names or not, that's not the important issue. What's important is what their names mean. Janus means one who seduces. Jambres means he who makes rebellion. And according to Jewish tradition, 
after these men were defeated by Moses and, of course, the power of God, they pretended to convert over to Judaism in order to seduce Israel and to create rebellion in the camp. Again, according to Jewish tradition, while Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, it was these two men who were giving leadership in the making of the golden Egyptian calf god and had even seduced Aaron to participate in that act of rebellion against God. So the point is that Satan has his servants working inside the camp of God's people. And from what we've studied in 2 Timothy so far, we we should be able to see that the church, that is the visible church, the, the one that we can see, well, it's made up of three different groups of people. It's made up of the genuine, and those are You know, those who are born again, they're growing in the relationship to Christ by the power of the Spirit. Well, the second group are the carnal, and these are the kind of people that are described in, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They don't grow, and as Paul calls them in, you know, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, they're people of the flesh. But there's a third group, and the group is the one he mentions here in 2 Timothy, the imposters. And Paul is warning us that in the era of the church— And while the church is growing and reaching out to ever more people, bringing more and more people to Christ, that alongside of that, the number of imposters will grow. And now from the vantage point of history, we can see that this has been true of every epoch of church history. They seek to seduce God's people, and their presence means that these are dangerous times. There is, Paul writes Timothy, a very dangerous road ahead. And in this era, that is the era of the last days, there will be a great struggle. Indeed, every generation of believers in Jesus will encounter a great struggle. And as Paul has predicted here, that has always been the case. Imposters are a great danger to us all. But as we will all see from reading this text, this is not just the imposters that are the problem. Something even more sinister is at play here. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent, trustworthy Bible teaching to Canadians. The result of faithful Bible teaching is thousands of lives being encouraged, challenged, even transformed from coast to coast. What is accomplished can be attributed to people like you who share a heart for the Bible, but also those who share a heart to provide Bible teaching resources beyond our borders. Partnerships around the world ensure that we do our part to sow God's Word through Bible teaching programs, print resources, and Bible teaching conferences beyond the confines of country, culture, or language. February is Back to the Bible Canada's International Ministry Month. Your one-time gift toward our $50,000 target or considering becoming an international monthly partner would do so much. To give or to sign up for monthly partnership, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The great struggle of the early church, that was the struggle against the Judaizers. Those were those who insisted that no one could be saved unless they submitted to circumcision and adhered to Jewish dietary restrictions. Well, then came the struggle with those who wanted to combine Greek philosophy with the gospel. And in the 400s and beyond, the church was assaulted with the temptation to align itself to the powers of the world and to use worldly power, that is, political and military might of Rome, to advance the Christian faith. 
And then came the Middle Ages, where sacramentalism literally replaced faith in Christ as the only pathway to forgiveness. And then came rationalism and enlightenment thinking, and and then the birth of liberal Christianity. And then came subjectivism, where the self and the experiences of self replaced the once-for-all revelation of God's Word. I mean, each of these heresies are felt not outside but inside of the church. And so every epoch encounters new heresies, new threats to what Jude in, in Jude verse 3 called the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. But here's my own comment on that. It seems to me that heresies actually compound. That is, they don't ever simply go away. They remain while others are added to them. In some way, I want to say of this dangerous road ahead for God's people, that the seasons of heresy, they come and go, but the last will be worse than the first. You know, Paul goes on about the dangerous road that is ahead. Look again at verses 2 and 4. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, here's a list of 18 or 19 vices, depending on how you count. And it's not possible for me to go over all of them, but would you notice the bookends of this list? At the front of the list, lovers of self. And at the back end of the list, lovers of pleasure. That is, the prime issue that leads to pride, arrogance, slander, that whole list is self-love. And added to that, if you notice the list, the word love is used five times. Lovers of self, lovers of money, not loving good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And added to that is the word heartless, meaning no compassion, no love for others. You see what Paul has done? First, he's begun by telling Timothy that there's a dangerous and violent road ahead for the people of God, and now he tells us why. The great danger we face is the danger in our affections, or what or whom we love. You know, in the early 5th century, the great Christian teacher, Augustine of Hippo, wrote a book entitled City of God. Augustine said, there has always been before the human race membership in one of two cities— The city of man is characterized by a love of self and a hatred of God, whereas the city of God is characterized by a love of God and a despising of self. And I want to say this because we live in a culture that has made self-love into a virtue and not a vice. And that teaching has found its way into the church. So gone is the dichotomy that Paul painted here between loving self or loving God, and in its place is a new teaching that says, look, you can't really learn to love God or anyone else until you first learn to love yourself. Now, someone would say, well, doesn't the Bible tell us to love others as we do love ourselves? Yeah, it does. Well, then, doesn't that mean that we have to love ourselves before we can love others? No, That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. That means we all demonstrate that we love ourselves by the fact that we feed and clothe ourselves. See, the fact is, I don't love others as I love myself. I mean, to do so would be a a remarkable thing indeed. And that's what the Bible means when it says that. Now, there's so much more I could say here. I could talk about why it is self-evident that, you know, suicide is the ultimate act of self-love. 
Uh, so is low self-esteem. I mean, study after study has found that the vast majority of us think of ourselves as way above average. How 90% of us ends up in the top 10%, well, that's just one of the great mysteries of life. See, the great tragedy is that when this finds its way into our theology, you see, books with titles such as Your Best Life Now, which shows how you can achieve your dreams, come to understand your value, and come to financial prosperity, while the author says that God wants you to become extremely wealthy and that your problem is that you're just thinking too small. He says that anyone can create by faith and words the dreams that they desire if only they enlarge their vision, or as I put it, enlarge their greed. I mean, then God will help you to get whatever you're after. I mean, that kind of stuff, that's immensely popular. Not long ago, a popular seminar within Christian circles had a game in which participants were given five magic pills and told everyone in the circle is dying of cancer, but they only had five magic pills that they could give to only five people. So whom would they choose? It was only at the end of the game, after the participants had given out the five pills, that the true intent of the game was revealed. The participant was firmly chastised for giving them all away. Isn't that your problem, they were told. You're always taking care of others, and you've got nothing left for yourself. You should have kept back one of those pills for yourself. You see, self-love was commended as a great virtue. And contrast that with Paul's words. Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others, others more significant than yourselves. Or Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. See, you can't follow Jesus unless you're willing to say no to yourself. The rich young ruler was told to give it away. You know, one would-be follower had to be reminded that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has no place to lay his head. And behind that was the question, are you really prepared for the kind of self-denial that this involves? Are you actually prepared to find Christ to be your highest joy and for the sake of him to abandon all other things? Will you love him so that you'd be willing for the sake of Christ to lose all things. See, the great danger is in the affections, in what or whom we love. See, this isn't persecution from without or false teachers from within. This is our affections, our desires, our loves. This is a great danger. Look again at verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. See, it's possible for your faith to be entirely external, The word appearance comes from the word morphous. It's an outward shape. It's a silhouette. It's like the Hollywood movie set in which all the houses are facades and there's nothing in the back of it. There are people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. The power of the gospel is the change of life. So, for instance, look at the second vice in verse 2 that is a lover of money. If you have the power of the gospel, you now see money has a tool to give and to advance the gospel. Giving becomes sacrificial. That's a gospel with power. A gospel without power is one where all the old patterns of greed remain. See, the danger is in the affections. It begins by asking, whom do you love? Then, what have you become? Are you changed by the gospel? And then, who do you follow? See, one of the marks of false teachers is whom they target. Verses 6 and 7. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. 
I know some of us are offended by that remark, but this text doesn't say that women are an easy prey for false teachers. It says that weak women are an easy prey for false teachers. So what is a weak woman? Well, it's one that's burdened with sin, led astray by passions, always can't wait for the next new teaching, and never settling on something solid. But aren't there weak men as well? Yeah, there are. But it may be that men and women handle temptations differently. You know, I, I know it's an overgeneralization, but still, seems to me, a weak woman becomes involved in false spirituality, and a weak man drops out of spirituality altogether. A weak woman gets involved in a seminar to discover her inner goddess. A weak man hangs out at the boat with bikers or at the bar or something of that kind. I know it's an overgeneralization. Don't write me letters. But false teachers have known for millennia that they can build a following around weak women, and they do. But that only highlights the point. In the last days, these issues, not the issues about what constitutes truth, but about the issues about which are the things that we love. These will become the major issues that possess the thoughts of the human race. Let us fight for a love of Christ rather than a love of self. Thanks so much, John. John, could you take a moment though and and help us better understand, even define, what is an affection? Yeah, an affection, that's, I'm using really an older English word, uh, but it got used by uh, a lot of Bible teachers back in the 1700s especially. And an affection is a strong inclination of the soul. And when I say that is that the soul leans in a given direction. It desires certain things and it finds itself repelled by others. So, you know, Jonathan Edwards used to say that, you know, a true faith is, is uh, made up in the affections. It's the things that we hate, and it has to do with the things that we love. So an affection then, a, a godly affection would be, uh, have a look and say, how does your soul respond to commands of righteousness, uh, loving your neighbor, sharing the good news, uh, you know, sacrificing all for the cause of the gospel. Does your soul arise for that? Is Are there affections in your soul? So these are the way in which we can tell that the Spirit of God is at work in us. If we find that not to be the case, we need to repent. That's it. Thanks so much. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Make It Count, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind, like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage he spoke about that day. And every time, I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.